For 2,000 years, Christians have practiced a ritual called baptism. Depending on the church, it looks a little different. In some churches, you may see the officiant pour water over the head of an individual. In some churches, they aggressively will dunk a baby three times in the water. I've included a link to a video in the show notes. It's wild. In, in some cases, you'll see people gathered in a river or a lake or a pool, and one person will dip grown children or adults in the water. But where does this tradition come from? Why do we associate becoming a Christian with a ceremony involving water? Hi there, my name is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. In case you're new to this podcast, I spent 39 years in Protestant communities and was a pastor for 11 of those years. I was also the co-founder of a ministry called Christianity is Jewish, which served to help Christians understand the Jewish roots of their faith, as well as show Jewish people how Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. At the age of 41, I came home to the Catholic Church. In our regular episodes, we've been focusing on the Eucharist, but today we're beginning a series on the sacrament of baptism. Just as a refresher, remember that the Catholic Church, and Orthodox Church for that matter, professes that there are seven sacraments. They're the sacraments of initiation, which are baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist, also known as communion. There are the sacraments of healing, which includes reconciliation, also known as confession, and anointing the sick. And then there are the sacraments of service, which are holy orders and marriage. Baptism is the first sacrament and sometimes referred to as the gateway to the other sacraments because it is the first sacrament that one enters into in their journey to Christianity. In many Catholic churches, you'll find a baptismal font right as you walk into the church. Why? Its location symbolically demonstrates that baptism is the initiation into the Christian community. However, in beginning our look at the sacrament of baptism, I want us to explore the context of baptism, which is found in Judaism. Just like we began our discussion on the Eucharist by looking at its Jewish roots in Passover, we're going to begin talking about baptism by looking at its origin in Judaism as well. The Christian word baptism is associated with the Hebrew word mikvah. The origin of the word mikvah doesn't mean baptism or immersion in waters. It's actually a word that's associated with any body of gathered water. For example, in Genesis 1, 9 through 10, it says, quote, And God said, Let the waters under the sky be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good, end quote. The phrase gathering together of the waters is the Hebrew word mikvah. Recent excavations of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem have uncovered ancient mikvahs as part of the second temple constructed in 516 BC. We read about a number of these pools or mikvahs in the gospel accounts. For example, in John 9, we read that Jesus healed a man born blind and told him to wash in the pool of Siloam. The pool of Siloam was a mikvah. Even today, Jewish communities typically have at least one mikvah in their area, and it consists of a system of pools whereby water is gathered, pushed in, filtered out, and then recycled. Now, as Judaism has developed, specific rules have developed as well. If you know anything about Jewish laws, you know that there are rigid guidelines and lots of nuances. Mikvah is no exception. For one, a proper mikvah cannot just be any gathered body of water, like a lake or a river. It must be built into the ground or as an essential part of a building. So anything portable, like a jacuzzi, doesn't count. Another aspect of a kosher mikvah is that it must contain a minimum of 200 gallons of rainwater, which is gathered and siphoned into pools in a specific manner. The water cannot be stagnant like a rain barrel. It must have a constant flow of fresh rainwater. 
Another law states that before doing a mikvah, one must completely bathe. The mikvah is not a bathtub where you soap up and get clean. You come in once you're completely washed. And this may come as a surprise to you, but when doing a mikvah, you must enter completely naked, including removing any jewelry, and you must completely immerse yourself in the water. The idea here is that the water is washing over your entire body and making you pure from head to toe. In the show notes, I've included a link to a comprehensive website on the details of mikvah. Why are these pools or mikvahs important? Throughout the Jewish law, we see this focus on washing oneself. In Exodus 29-30, God repeats over and over the need for people to wash their hands and feet before entering the tabernacle. Leviticus 13-15 through deals with things like bodily discharges and the notion of community uncleanliness and measures to take before becoming clean. For example, during a woman's time of menstruation, she was considered unclean. She had to remove herself from the general population, and once her period was over, she would take a mikvah, and that mikvah marked the moment she was now considered clean and could reunite with the general population. If that seems outlandish, remember Leviticus was written in a primitive time with primitive conditions. The world didn't have modern medicine, nor did it understand how communicable diseases were transferred through bodily fluids. So in order to keep the Jewish population alive and limit the spread of diseases, God gave them specific laws that would help keep diseases out of the Jewish camp. Most of the laws surrounding mikvahs pertain to women, and in fact, there's a myth in Jewish circles that mikvah is a woman's thing, but it's really not. For example, if a couple has sex, technically, according to Leviticus, they are considered unclean until they do a mikvah. If a man has some sort of discharge, whether it's seminal fluids or some sort of skin infection, he is himself unclean until he completes a mikvah. The Jewish custom of mikvah wasn't just for practical cleanliness, but also for ceremonial purity as well. For example, when someone converts to Judaism, they are to perform a mikvah. In addition, before getting married or in preparation for Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, or when entering a new stage of life, Jewish people will often complete a mikvah. In doing so, the individual is entering a new beginning. Just as a baby is immersed in fluids in the womb and comes out of those fluids in their birth, so to a person completing a mikvah is in a sense entering a new life. Now that we've talked about the nuts and bolts of mikvah, let's talk about the mystical nature of what I would call a Jewish sacrament, if I can borrow that word and apply it here. The immersion into the waters of mikvah means going from impurity to purity. And I want to stress something here that often gets lost in the Western world. Mikvah is not a formality, and though it is full of symbology, it can't be reduced to being merely symbolic. Mikvah is fundamentally essential to the Jewish understanding of cleanliness and purity. It is sacramental in nature. If you listen to episode 3, you'll recall how I explained that the Greek derivative of the word sacrament is mysterium and how that word means mystery. For the Jewish person, mikvah is a mystery. They enter the water unclean and they exit it clean. They believe something mystical takes place whereby they go in impure and come out pure. It's not just the fact that they've washed because remember, they completely bathe or shower before entering the mikvah. So mikvah is something extra, something mystical, whereby their nature, not just their physical body, becomes clean. If you recall in episode 9 on the Jewish roots of the Eucharist, I mentioned how Jewish liturgy was meant to bend time and space in order to unite the Jewish people into a single story. This is why I use the word mystery or mystical and sacramental when describing mikvah. 
those that enter the waters of mikvah are entering into the single story of Jewish history. That story began at the moment of creation. Genesis 1.1 says, quote, In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God, or some translations say the Spirit of God, swept over the face of the waters. Skipping ahead to verse 9, it says, And God said, Let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. End quote. We have the gathering of waters, where we get that word mikvah, and what was hovering above the waters? It was the Spirit of God. Let's consider the story of Noah. After the rain had stopped and the water started receding, the ark came to a stop. Genesis 8, starting in verse 6, states, quote, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent out the raven, and it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent out the dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground, but the dove found no place to set its foot, and it returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still in the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took it and brought it into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent out the dove, and it did not return to him anymore. End quote. So God brought Noah and his family up out of the waters, and what was hovering above the ark? A dove. What does the dove represent? It represents the Spirit of God. This is the very thing we see at Jesus' baptism. Matthew three sixteen through 17 says, quote, And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. End quote. Consider also how the Hebrews, or the Jewish people, escaped slavery in Egypt. God parted waters of the Red Sea, and they passed through the waters. And what was leading them through those waters? Listen to what Exodus 14, 19-20 says, quote, The angel of God, who was going before the Israelite army, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. And so the cloud was there with the darkness, and it lit up the night. One did not come near the other all night." The Hebrews were being led away from Egypt by the Shekinah glory, a theophany, a physical manifestation of the presence of God in the form of a pillar of cloud. And that pillar of cloud stopped right over the Red Sea, which caused the Hebrews to be thoroughly confused. They thought they were trapped, but God did a miracle and collected the waters, a mikvah, just like in the creation account. The Hebrews passed through the Red Sea on dry ground with the Spirit of God right there above the waters guiding them. And when they passed through the Red Sea, God caused the waters to fall on the Egyptians. And at that moment, the Hebrews became a free people. We see this very same imagery again when the Jewish people entered the Promised Land. When the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant stood in the Jordan River, God created another mikvah, gathering the waters of the Jordan River so the people could pass through it on dry ground. What is the Ark of the Covenant? 
It is a theophany, a physical manifestation of the presence of God. God's spirit was there hovering over the waters. And how fitting that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, the very river that his ancestors crossed to obtain their inheritance. And once again, with Jesus' baptism, the same as the crossing of the Jordan River, we see the spirit of God hovering over the waters. My point is this, mikvah wasn't just a practical tradition. When one entered into a mikvah, they were mystically becoming part of a single story that began at creation. The water bent time and space, and they were becoming contemporaries with the Jewish people who escaped and entered the promised land. Now, I want to point to an important conversation that Jesus had with a Jewish leader named Nicodemus, which we find in John 3. Starting in verse 3, it says, quote, Jesus answered him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God before being born from above, or some translations say being born again. Nicodemus said to him, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven without being born of water and spirit, end quote. In Jesus' words, how does one become born again? This is something I think a lot of Protestants completely miss. Jesus said we are born again by water and spirit. Just as water was essential to entering the Jewish community, water along with the spirit is essential to entering into the Christian community. Water is not symbolic. It is substantive and effectual, and we'll take a look at this a lot more in the next two episodes. There's another component that is essential into entering the Jewish community as well, namely circumcision. When God met with Abraham and made a covenant with him, Abraham then was circumcised at the age of 99, which couldn't have been fun at all. That circumcision became the sign of Abraham's line. In fact, after the Jewish people left, hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt, wandered in the desert for 40 years, and finally crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land, all the males were circumcised. Circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, the old covenant. And when I use the word sign, I don't mean symbol in today's sense, as though it's optional. Circumcision was and still is a non-negotiable in the Jewish community. It is something parents do because it's not just a symbol of being Jewish. It is sacramental and mystical. It unites that boy with a long line of Jewish males all the way back to Abraham. And if you're a male converting to Judaism, you must also be circumcised in addition to performing a mikvah. In Acts 15, we read about an enormous debate in the early church that led to the first council of Jerusalem. Basically, a faction of Jewish converts to Christianity felt that it was imperative that Christians were circumcised. That should give you an idea of just how serious circumcision is to the Jewish people. So why in Acts 15 did the leaders decide that converts to Christianity did not need to be circumcised? Well, they saw circumcision as a requirement of the Old Covenant, and shortly after, they began to understand how baptism also replaces circumcision as the sign of the New Covenant. Listen to Paul's words in Colossians 2, 11 through 12. Quote, in him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. End quote. In baptism, we see how Jesus fulfills the laws of Judaism in a fuller, more complete way. Circumcision was only given to Jewish males. 
Baptism is for males and females. With respect to the practice of mikvah, one had to immerse themselves in water every time they were healed from some sort of physical discharge. But just as Jesus' sacrifice once for all did away with the need for animal sacrifices, our baptism is a one-time event as well. I want to end with a question. Why did Jesus get baptized? After all, he was baptized in the Jordan River by his cousin John the Baptist, and John's baptism was different from a Jewish mikvah. For one, it was done in the river, and secondly, Luke 3 tells us that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Why would Jesus need to be baptized if he was sinless? I personally think there's two reasons why Jesus insisted on John's baptism. First, I think Jesus is showing us the way. He's, in a sense, ordaining this type of baptism. Just as he institutes the practice of the Eucharist, he instituted the practice of baptism. And while baptism has its roots in the Jewish practice of mikvah, Jesus is expanding the purpose of baptism. Mikvah is fulfilled in a bigger sense in Jesus' baptism. What Jesus is saying is that a physical ailment, such as a skin disease, may keep you ostracized from Jewish society because you're unclean, but that's not what keeps you out of the kingdom of heaven. What keeps you out of the kingdom of heaven is a spiritual ailment, and baptism is the first step in overcoming that disease. And secondly, the reason Jesus is baptized has to do with entering this single story that has been going on since creation, the story of water and spirit. And again, it's no coincidence that Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, the very river that the Jewish people crossed when entering into the promised land. And in his baptism, we see both water and spirit. Jesus is entering that single story. Listen to how Peter weaves together that single story. 1 Peter 3, 18-22 says, quote, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons were saved through water and baptism which this prefigured now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to god for good conscience through the resurrection of jesus christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of god with angels authorities and powers made subject to him end quote do you see that jewish mystical notion of a single story here when we are baptized in the waters in the name of Jesus, we enter into that single story of God's redemption. We identify with Jesus and he mysteriously uses the waters to wash away our sins. And that idea of baptism for the remission of sins is our topic for next time. For now, let me offer my sincere thanks for joining me for this episode of Why Catholic. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. I have another favor to ask. Would you consider becoming a patron? It's just a few bucks a month, and it covers my costs for running this podcast, but I also give a portion of every donation to support Catholic ministries. As a thank you, patrons receive some added benefits such as being able to recommend future episodes, priority in having your questions answered in future Q&A episodes, and joining me for live chats. You can sign up at whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Until next time, God bless you. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. <laughs>